Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, Warren Ward in conversation with Lee Kaufman. Ward's new book, Lovers of Philosophy, explores the love lives of seven philosophers and how their most intimate experiences came to shape their ideas. They're Europe's greatest thinkers, but what were they like at love? Here's the recording of the event. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Readings Carlton. I'm really glad that you could all join us here tonight for this event um, to celebrate this fantastic new book. Um, it has been out for a little while, but I think uh, you know this is the first time we've been able to have our author here in the store to celebrate the book and to tell us some more about it. Um, before we get going with the event tonight, I would like to earnestly acknowledge that this is Indigenous land. This is the Kulin country, and this is the land of the Wurrung and Burundjeri people. And as a representative of readings here tonight, and someone who lives and works within the area more broadly, I would like to acknowledge the elders of the past, the present and emerging, and the custodians of this land. I'm going to hand over to our, I guess our host, our interviewer of sorts tonight. We have with us Lee Kaufman, who is a writer, author, a speaker, a blogger. I've read your blog. It's really good. <laughs> but without further ado, um, I'm going to hand over to Lee to introduce our guest for tonight. Um, and I hope you all really enjoy. So thank you very much. Nico, thank you for this really lovely introduction. Can you hear me okay like that? So it is my absolute pleasure to be talking to Warren tonight. Now, I suspect most of you know who Warren is, but I just still want to say that he is, just for my sort of benefit, of my pleasure of listing some of your achievements. So I'm going to talk to Warren, who is a renowned psychiatrist, a passionate philosopher, an award-winning writer, and also, despite all his achievements, a very modest and generous person. And among many other people, I've been a beneficiary of his generosity some years ago when he helped me with research for one of my books, without even sort of knowing me really in real life. But we have been having these really lovely conversations online, short, but I think quite rich, for a few years now, um, because we both share passion for writing and also for reading books which are so big that they can be like door stopovers. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last month, when I finally met him uh, in person, in Avid Reader in Brisbane, I found out that not only he is a very wise person, a great conversationalist, but he's also very funny, as you'll see soon. <laughs> is that a lot of pressure, Warren? No pressure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but we are here tonight, actually, not to talk so much about Warren, sorry, Warren, but about his wonderful debut book, Lovers of Philosophy. There, Warren performs a mighty feat. He takes seven German and French philosophers, among them such notoriously difficult to understand one as Heidegger and Derrida. Am I pronouncing correctly the names? Absolutely, as far as I know. I practiced a lot before coming here. I was very <laughs> So he takes these philosophers, very difficult ones, and presents their ideas with great clarity, but without oversimplifying them. Drawing upon his therapy skills, he also analyzes the personal lives of these philosophers with zest and vividness. Warren then weaves these dimensions, the philosophical and the intimate together, to show how the two can never be truly separated, how the world of ideas is always draped in flesh. I share Warren's passion for existentialism, 
And I have previously read about most of the philosophers he discusses, but still, Warren's deceptively slim book, really kind of, uh, you know, uh, slim. It's actually really packed with informa information and a lot of wisdom, and it revealed these people's lives and ideas to me in yet new ways. I especially loved learning how these philosophers built on each other's works, and I also loved learning that uh, Foucault, if that's how you pronounce his name, was very fond of leather jackets. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll hear all about this soon. So I'm very, very excited, of course, um, about this opportunity, privilege, really, to discuss this book in depth with you, Warren. But before we go into the book, please allow me to do what you did to these poor philosophers and ask you a personal question. About my sex life. <laughs> uh, we will get there a bit later, I We promise. haven't got a very long time, I don't think. <laughs> so I wanted... To, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nervousness makes me inappropriate. No, 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 I've got a lot of uh, sex questions, don't you worry. That's why my, my child has earphones on, so. <laughs> but I just wonder, Warren, I mean, you are such a busy person. You're a professor of psychiatry, you're an ex expert on eating disorders, you're a practicing therapist, very much in demand, so clearly you didn't come to the study of philosophy because you uh, had too much free time on your hands, so why? I was a very poor medical student. Uh, so that helped. Um, so my interest in philosophy came probably about my second or third year of studying medicine when a person who's actually in the audience, my best friend Ross Smith over there, um, tossed me a, a copy of Simone de Beauvoir's She Came to Stay and also a copy of um, Jean-Paul Sartre's Nausea. And Jean-Paul Sartre's Nausea is all about uh, a young man who really has no faith in religion, no belief in science, and he wanders aimlessly in a very depressed fashion uh, throughout life going nowhere. And that had a profound effect on me. It made me very depressed, actually, <laughs> because it made me realise I didn't actually have any foundation for meaning or purpose in my life. You know, I wasn't religious, and science, uh, um, as the book sort of helps point out, doesn't really tell us how to live. And um, so, and you know, I failed quite a few subjects in medicine, but I was busy <laughs> reading... Um, Reading novels, yeah, mainly philosophical novels by Sartre, Camus, Beauvoir, and I just got... I was living in Brisbane at the time, which... A bit of a cultural desert, you know, not really very exciting, not a lot happening. Um, and just the, the whole world in those novels really um, struck something deep within me. You know, the cobblestone streets, the cafes, the, um, but the free, free thought, the free love. Um, and that really planted a seed for me asking the question which led to this book, which is what if we could find out about the love lives, because Simone de Beauvoir had written so well about Sartre's um, as a lover in her novels, a, a very imperfect one and a very um, imperfect human being, but that got me asking the question, what if we could find out about the love lives of other philosophers through their lovers? And that set me on many years of research to try and pull something together. And it almost, having read your book, it almost feels as if you have to have a, you have to be imperfect to be a philosopher. But we'll get to this mm. soon. And I want to talk to you a bit more about existentialism too, very soon. But first, I just wonder, can you tell us a little bit why did you decide to focus on continental philosophers and why these particular seven? Yeah. So, two questions there. Um, some of you may know that in about nineteen ten or nineteen twenty, there was a split in Western philosophy between continental and um, Anglophone philosophy or analytical philosophy. And analytical philosophy, which I'm not so interested in, is, um, is interested in... It's really like the handmaiden of science uh, and mathematics, so it includes figures such as Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell and 
uh, and Frigg from, from Germany. Um, but I was more interested in the continental side, which is really, it's a philosophy that's the handmaiden of the arts, of humanities. And so a lot of the continental philosophers are interested in literature and the truths that are not only in science but are in art, that are in politics, uh, that are in creativity, that are in context, history, such as gender. Um, so for some reason I've just always been pulled to that. It was really literature that got me into philosophy and so um, the continental philosophers are much more literary. Yeah, I was thinking about it with both, I mean, of course, you mentioned the novels of uh, Sartre and de Beauvoir, but also you talk about Hegel and uh, Derrida, who both, uh, at some point, as you write, found um, that poetic language was more suitable to expressing their ideas. Mm. So I was just wondering, why do you think these particular philosophers um, sort of thought ex the expression of ideas they thought it best will be through art, through creativity? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think um, I could probably only answer that best as a reader. And as a reader, I find analytic philosophy, whilst I'm sure it does a lot of important functions, it's, it's a bit over my head. I mean, you have to be very intelligent to understand it. <laughs> and and uh, it's rather dry. And it's only in re the last sort of 150 years that, or maybe even less, that philosophy's been professionalised and becoming academic. But the continental philosophers have always yeah, been interested in, in like Heidegger um, wrote, wrote a very uh, interesting piece, for example, about Van Gogh's painting of two shoes. And he just helps us understand what's behind the, the isness, the humanness of, of a piece of art. And so I think maybe as a psychotherapist, which is my day job, um, I'm interested in how people are trying to find their meaning, their way in the world. And... Often it's stories that maybe are narratives that help us with that rather than science, although science has its role as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was also thinking, as I was thinking about it, how poetic language perhaps can be better sort of used to uh, touch on those areas which um, are so difficult to pinpoint in human consciousness. In in because uh, these philosophers they go into such uh, kind of underexplored terrains, or at least underexplored terrains in daytimes. So I want us to stay just a little bit more of existentialism, because it was the engine for your book. And uh, of course, uh, Sartre and de Beauvoir got the longest chapter too, lucky them, in your book. Um, can you maybe read us a little excerpt, just to give people the taste of, of your writing there, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. The little section I was going to read out is actually a portrayal of Sartre's funeral. Uh, when he died in 1980, 50,000 people uh, filled the streets of Paris to go to his funeral. And I often think, yeah, 1980 is not maybe that long ago for people my age. Um, but I think Australia has some good philosophers, um, Chalmers, uh, Peter Singer. But I think when they fall off the perch, I don't think we'll get 50,000 to the gig. Um, I think Shane Warne... Recently got quite a few <laughs> coming along. So, but it just shows in France and Australia maybe what we lionise. Um, but, yeah, this is just a passage from um, Sartre's funeral and sh it highlights a little bit about the amazing relationship between Sartre and Beauvoir, both intellectually, you know, philosophically and also um, just the emotional connection between the two of them. On a grey morning in late April 1980... 50,000 people poured onto the streets of Paris for the funeral of Jean-Paul Sartre, 
the city's most revered and celebrated intellectual. Never before or since have so many gathered to pay their respects to a philosopher. Braving the cold and drizzle, the crowd extended as far as the eye could see, shuffling in a hushed silence behind a rain-streaked black hearse. Beginning its journey at the Broussay Hospital in Rue Didot, the funeral car slowly edged its way through the crowds that had brought Paris to a standstill. Many looked down from windows high above the streets that bordered the procession. Some clambered onto monuments or statues to get a glimpse of their, their idol as he passed. Politicians, academics, students, dignitaries and workers alike lined the French capital streets to pay homage to their much-loved philosopher king. I was just holding the book weird then, I don't know why. But. When the hearse arrived at Montparnasse Cemetery, the respectful silence that had prevailed up to this point gave way to jostling and shouts as the press and other onlookers surged to, to get a view of the casket. Microphones on long poles hovered over the silent coffin as it was carried to the grave. Journalists and members of the public, public held their cameras up high, frantically trying to catch one last glimpse of the philosopher before he was laid to rest. Newspapers around the world would report on the funeral the next day. One described how in the commotion, several were injured and many fainted as the crowd trampled over graves to reach the site where Mr Sartre's body will lie. The same article described how, quote, Mr Sartre's longtime companion, writer Simone de Beauvoir, had to be helped through the throng and one man slipped and fell into the grave shortly before the coffin was lowered into it. Okay, so uh, this, uh, this particular beautiful excerpt kind of leads me to my next question. I want to talk to you about some creative decisions you made in this book. So you sometimes use your eye in the book, but very sort of sparsely, sparingly. Mostly, I think, in the, at the start and the end. And uh, you also, as we just saw in this particular scene, you sometimes paint really vivid scenes as if you're writing fiction, but you also do it very sparingly. So it kind of felt to me as I was reading your book, and that's not a criticism, this is a good thing, I think. Mm -hmm. It kind of felt to me that your book was neither creative nonfiction nor sort of straight nonfiction. It's kind of teetered between them, and I wonder, why did you choose to write it like this? Yeah, well, it, it was my first book. I didn't really know what I was doing uh, at the beginning. Um, I just had a passion to learn about these philosophers' love lives and, and maybe how... And actually, once I'd sort of learnt about that, I realised that there were some themes about how the love lives might have shaped their ideas. And as, again, as a psychiatrist, I'm really interested in how our early intimate relationships, both in childhood and in adulthood, shape the way we see the world. You know, I do that with my patients all the time. And uh, so I was interested in looking at that with these seven interesting individuals. So my first draft was 190,000 words long, and that's about four times as long as that. But that was really just a download, in a way, of, of facts of me trying to just get things down about their love lives and, their and trying to understand their philosophies and explain it in a, in a clear way. And I went to lots of uh, writing workshops, and nearly all the ones I went to were um, fiction writing workshops. And not that I wanted to fictionalise. There's a few spots where I have sort of uh, imagined scenes and I've footnoted that. But most of it, I'm just trying to... Um, I tried to shape... The, I basically rewrote the book into scenes. And so um, after I'd done that first draft, I wrote, I think, about 76 scenes uh, on post-it notes. Each one had a name. And then I could see a sort of a narrative arc for the whole book from how each philosopher affected each other one. 
but also within uh, each philosopher's life and how the ideas shape them. And so I think in, in narrative nonfiction, in telling true stories, we can still tell it in scenes rather than in facts. And we remember, you know, it's like if we watch a bio, biopic, a biopic movie. Um, if there's scenes where um, we can see, smell and hear and taste and hear people talking to each other. And one technique of um, narrative non-fiction I learnt in one of the workshops was to use letters as dialogue because dialogue is a really good way to bring the reader into, into, into feeling like they're in the room with the people but there's a lot of letters that, can be, that are used for that. Thank you. So we talked a bit about creativity and we talked a little bit about philosophy. So now I want to go to the part of the lovers. Okay, so we're not with, with the sex yet, uh, but from reading your book, it seems that from looking at all these seven philosophers, it seems as if a prerequisite to being a great philosopher, you have to have a very miserable childhood. Preferably, you have to lose a family member very young as well. What do, do you have to say about this as a therapist? <laughs> yeah, no, that's very observant of you, Lee, and I, I noticed that too. That they'd all had, um, they they'd lost their their mothers and fathers early. They'd often had very miserable childhoods. And uh, I think Sartre gives us a clue to that. Um, when he says in his, um, his Nobel Prize winning memoir called Words, he said, my father died when I was two and a half years old. And something like, I paraphrase, thank God for that, because that <laughs> allowed me to create a whole world for myself and to be free in my explorations in, in philosophy and literature. And it reminds me of... Um, I've got a very dear friend who um, has a really great relationship with his father. He really loves his father. He really adores his father. I have a different sort of relationship with my father. It's very complex. Um, and my friend, he, he's rather conservative in his, um, and thinks the same way as his father, whereas I think I went searching a lot more because I, I relate to Sartre. I had to find a way to, to create meaning and maybe find that in literature or art or, or science. But, um, so I think the loss of the father one has to create a fatherland, so to speak, you know, a world um, of ideas that can make sense. So I thought I, I had noticed that as well. <laughs> how many years have you spent with this book? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, how oh, many yeah. did you? So I wrote, <laughs> I wrote the first lot, few lines in 2009. And, wow. I, and I wasn't planning to write a book. I just, I just actually had this, exp like, a, like Carl Jung would call... Um, an experience of active imagination. I was sitting in the bath. It's like Archimedes. And this flash just came to me of, um, of the streets of Paris and those books I used to read many years ago. And then this almost like a voice came to me, what if we could learn about the philosophers from their other philosophers from their lovers? And I went home and just scribbled a few uh, pages, showed it to my wife. And she's usually very critical and honest. And she went, hmm, it's not too bad. And so I kept writing. <laughs> Fantastic. So speaking of lovers, lovers, real part, uh, it seems to me, to me after having read your book that another prerequisite for philosophical greatness is either to be really sexually frustrated or to have a particularly voracious sexuality. What, what would you say about that? Why is it so? Yeah, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question, but it, I guess the questions that have been going through my mind, I mean, Freud, who I've been trained in a sort of Freudian and neo-Freudian way, Talked about talks about sublimation, and, and I think in Immanuel Kant's case that's probably true. So the, France, Freud said that we basically have these sexual and aggressive drives that we don't know what to do with, and we can um, we can be, get all repressed and have become 
obsessed with cleaning the house as a way of dealing with those drives, <laughs> for example, or we could um, sublimate it to a higher cause like art or writing. And Kant, Emmanuel Kant, for example, he was in love his whole life with a woman called Caroline Kaiserlink, who was a, a countess and also studied and translated philosophy. This was way back in the uh, 1700s. And um, he knew he could never marry her or um, have consummate that relationship because she was about three levels higher than them, him in the Prussian hierarchy. But he always um, held a candle for her. He dedicated a lot of his work to her. His final work was dedicated to her. And I like to think that he sublimated some of that, um, that um, unrequited feelings into his amazing first 800-page critique of Pure Reason and then two other critiques. Um, so that's one way to uh, deal with your sexuality. Um, and then you've got Sartre, who I think was a very interesting example. But I talk about, in a way, he had what Freud might call some eatable aspects to his relationship. So growing up, his father died when he was very young. He was put in a room with his mother till he was 12 by a very strange grandfather who used to call them uh, les enfants, you know, the children. And the grandfather had this idea about child rearing that a child should never have any other playmates. So he never had any playmates uh, his whole childhood. He only had his mother. And then his mother, when, she was, when Sartre was 12, uh, fell in love and remarried. And Sartre was absolutely devastated. And a few years later, he went to Paris, uh, lost his virginity to a woman his mother's age. And then he, um, he well, he basically, I think he was a sex addict. He was very compulsively sexual and he, he confided to Beauvoir, who was his best friend, that he never got any satisfaction from any of those encounters. And there were many, many encounters. Uh, and interestingly, when his mother's uh, second partner died, Sartre moved straight back in with her. Um, when he was in his 40s and lived with her till her death. And he never lived with Beauvoir. Um, they lived in separate hotels the whole time. And she was like a mother confessor almost for him. He would tell her everything. And he was a very um, dissatisfied um, sexually, uh, even though he had a lot of quantity, no, not much quality. <laughs> so, Warren, if he went to you and lay on your metaphorical couch, what would you advise him? Well, the art of psychotherapy is to help, first of all, the person to feel safe and then to find their own narrative that makes sense for them. And so um, if he came... And he almost used Simon um, Beauvoir as a confessor. If he said, oh, look, Doc, having sex every week with a different woman, but I don't feel anything. And in fact, what he said to Beauvoir, is said, I'd rather just lie with her naked... And, and kiss, that would give me more satisfaction. Which it feels like a childhood sexuality to me, an infant sexuality. Your son's got his earphones on, that's good. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, I'd probably just help him to um, talk about the original issue about his feelings about his mother and, um, and the despair and, you know, rage and impotence he felt when... And maybe ask him now as an adult, what did he think about his grandfather's um, child-rearing... Um, methods so that he can sort of come to a view himself and have some compassion towards himself. But he's died, so I didn't get the chance to cure Sartre. Damn. Yeah. Um, still, still sort of remaining with the sexuality topic, um, I'm thinking about Foucault, who had really, I was really interested in reading about how far he took his sexual experimentation and how this, uh, how beautifully you describe how this experimentation, how all these sort of adventures he had reshaped his 
philosophical thought, so I wonder if you can talk a bit about that. Yeah, so just a little bit of background. Foucault, uh, when he was 19, arrived at the École Normale Supérieure, which was the main university in Paris where uh, philosophers would go to learn. And he went there in the late 50s and it was a hotbed of radicalism then, Trotskyism, Marxism, anarchism, but they weren't very tolerant of homosexuality. And he um, yeah, felt very shamed by some of the experiences there. He would often go off to Beats in Paris and come back. And, um, and once he was found um, on, on the floor of his um, dormitory covered in razor blade um, slashes and he'd been found in a pool of blood and he tried to kill himself, um, he'd internalised that homophobic sort of um, views that was in the occult and in Par and just in the West in general. And his father, um, who was a very conservative surgeon from the provinces, rushed to call the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist arrived uh, and said, the good news is I've, um, I've worked out the diagnosis. Your son suffers from a mental illness and it's called homosexuality. <laughs> and we have a range of um, cures because back then it was seen as an illness and a crime. Uh, and fortunately, Foucault escaped the psychiatrist and went on to write his masterpiece, Madness and Civilization, which is a critique of psychiatry and how language can be used by those in power to keep people, um, other people voiceless. And Foucault, I don't know if everyone, many people know this, but he is the most cited um, author in the sciences or in the humanities of any other author. So he's a, he went on to um, develop a an area called historiography, which is really an analysis and a rewriting of history and rewriting of narratives. But that was a background to your question, which is um, towards the what turned out to be the end of his life, Foucault was... Uh, he was really interested in this idea of... Um, and he was the opposite of Sartre. Sartre believed that we're individual human subjects and we have this freedom which we must exercise. Foucault believed, and it's a belief that stayed with us today... He was a post-structuralist and he, he believed that um, it's culture and gender and external forces that really structure the way we think and feel and act. And, and a lot of we th what we think is individual thought is just structured by, I guess, the semiotics of the um, society we live in. Uh, and he really wanted to get beyond that. He wanted to, get, um, he wanted to, he wanted to create himself anew um, beyond all these cultural forces. And he was a Nietzschean. He always said, I'm a Nietzschean. That was a Nietzschean idea. And... One thing that really excited him was when he went to um, San Francisco and the, um, the gay liberation movement was open and there was, there was um, gay saunas, sadomasochistic um, group sex. But he was really interested in exploring the limits of um, getting outside of his head through sadomasochistic experiments but all through, LS through LSD and he called these limited experiences and he wanted to get beyond the limits of being stuck inside his own culturally formed... Uh, sense of himself. He wanted to get beyond the self. So, it, yeah, sadly, he um, it was during the time of AIDS and he did... Um, he was one of the first um, French um, major figures to die of AIDS. But, yeah, he was really trying to um, explore something that was really important to him. And he was... At the time, he'd, he'd just written, I think, the first three volumes of his six-volume History of Sexuality, which was his last work. Yeah, I read it. It's beautiful. Mm. It's very groundbreaking. Um... We talk, you talked before about one of the reasons that you particularly were interested in continental philosophers and you said that you liked about them that they not so much sort of trying to understand how we know what we know, but they were actually really interested in everyday life, in politics and how to live your life. So I want to talk about the, some, this very common phenomenon 
about of among you know great people of the disparity between what they preach and what they actually do in their personal life. So let's talk about the German philosopher Heidegger. So you write in your book, I'm just quoting, Heidegger's works would argue that even if God was dead, we could still create a life of authenticity by exercising our free will to make the right choices. Ironically, in his own life, he made some pretty poor choices, especially in relation to Nazism, but also in relation to his women. So I just kind of um, wanted to ask you if you could tell us about some of the poor choices he made, but also how your thinking possibly changed uh, after you met his 92-year-old son. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Heidegger, um, in 1927, he wrote his major work, which is called Being and Time. And some of the ideas in that book are... Um, the German word is uh, Gewürftheit, the idea that we're thrown, we're all thrown into the world in a time and a place that's beyond our control. So the facticity, it was another term he used, of our existence. But um, unlike other types of being, rocks and trees and, and books, um, we humans, he didn't like to use the term human, he used the term uh, uh, Dasein, I think, yeah, Dasein, which is being there, uh, we are aware of our own mortality, that we're hurtling towards it. And all we have is this little bit of freedom to try and make sense of, of the world. And, and sorry, to live an authentic life, as he put it, rather than running with the herd, um, paradoxically, was a phrase he used. Um, but as you um, indicated, when he was in his 30s, uh, he was married with two young children. He um, started an affair with a 19-year-old student whose name was Hannah Arendt, who... Um, uh, 19. 19, yeah, 19-year-old, yeah. Yeah, Hannah Arendt. And they had a, a very passionate affair for about four or five years. Then the, um, this was in the 1930s, then the Nazi party started um, harassing all Jewish people. And interestingly, Hannah Arendt didn't even hardly identify as Jewish. You know, that was the terrible thing about Nazism. It sort of told people they were Jewish when she, she was a very secular um, Jewish person from Königsberg. Uh, but she had to escape. She almost um, got caught up in the concentration camps. And soon after that, Heidegger joined the Nazi party. And he um, joined it, it seems, mainly to further his career, um, to get a promotion as the uh, dean of the university. And there's very um, poignant letters where Arendt, who still that was, was writing to him, saying, I hear all these rumours about you, are they true? And he, he angrily denied them. Um, he also had another lover, actually, Elizabeth Blochmann, who was also Jewish, and he, he helped her get out of Germany. So it was very, obviously, a complex time. Now, through a strange series of coincidences, I was writing the book, I met a fellow psychiatrist, and I told him I was writing a book about Heidegger, and he said, oh, my mother knows Heidegger's son. And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, yeah, they live in Freiburg. I said, is there any chance, do you think I could interview him? Two weeks later, I was on a 27-hour flight to Freiburg, and uh, driving in a cab with an interpreter who I'd paid for to go to a little house on the outskirts of Freiburg. And out came a 94-year-old man, um, big tall man with a shot of white hair, big, big hands, and his lovely wife, Jutta, and they put on a nice spread for me. And um, the interview opened with me saying, I was pretty nervous, to be honest, um, and I um, said, what is it that you'd like to tell me about your father? And he looked at me and said, and he had a very strange look in his eye, like a very glassy eye, and he looked at me and said, do you know who I am? 
and there was this silence. And then I just remembered that the night before I'd been doing massive amounts of research and his niece Gertrude had just released some letters which revealed that Heidegger's son was not actually Heidegger's son, that um, Heidegger's wife Elfrida had had an affair and, and, and produced the second child, which was Herman, who I was talking to. But the, the psychotherapist sort of clicked onto my brain, which was sometimes as a psychotherapist you've got to say two things that are opposite and they're both true. And I said, I, I know that um, Martin was not your biological father and I understand that he was your father. And he went, oh, yes, you understand. And then we had a great old chat for about 90 minutes. Um, but, yeah, it was very chilling, really. It wasn't a great old chat. It was very um, strange. And one thing that was very chilling he told me about when he was... Um, he told me that his mother was very interested in Nazism. She'd read Mein Kampf. She was very passionately um, believed it would help Germany to, to um, recover from its humiliation, but that his father really wasn't that interested in, in politics. Now, there, there's, um, there's whole libraries full of this <laughs> argument, so I'm not going to get into it, but my experience sitting in this lounge room with one rather partial person, you know, told me this. And he also told me a memory of when he was 12, his mother got them to dress up in white shirts and ties for the first time in their life, and they went to the Freiburg football stadium where a person called Adolf Hitler, who hadn't been elected yet or come to power, was uh, giving a, le lecture, a rally to 50,000 people. So that sort of sent a... Shut it down my spine, and he, he's since passed. He he died a few years ago. So so um, talking about still staying with this idea of um, practical implications of philosophy for life, maybe not for the philosophers themselves, but for the audiences. Yeah. In fact, sorry, before I ask this question, yeah. I just must say, flag to the audience that. I prepared, there's so much in this book, it's such a wonderful, rich, exciting book, so I have like 22 questions, and as this is after, cut, you know, cutting out a lot, which I did not get through, but unfortunately for me, unfortunately for you, my time asking questions almost come to, come, sort of came to the end, so I'm going to ask last question, and then it's uh, on to you, so think about what you may want to ask um, Warren. But my last question to you is, so speaking about the practicalities of philosophy, Having spent so many years with these seven philosophers, has it somehow, has do, writing this book somehow changed your own life? Have you started thinking about or doing something differently? What, have you, what, what practical stuff have you learned from, from uh, writing this? Um, look, I'm one of those very lucky and fortunate people that I've found a couple of passions in life, like writing is a passion, but also all the bits that go into writing, reading, researching. Um, I'm working on another book now and unfortunately all the books I write involve me trancing through Europe, you know, <laughs> going down cobblestone streets, looking into cafes, but someone's got to do it, you know. <laughs> and so um, but I think looking at all these philosophers who are all radical revolutionary thinkers, it's just got me realising to question any thought I have about anything and to keep an open mind. That sounds a little bit clichéd, but it's, um, it's true, you know, in, in my work, in my life. To not really, to realise that every belief I have is constructed and can be deconstructed. So yeah, Nadine asked, "Is there any particular philosopher I have a uh, particular affinity for and would love to meet in person?" Let me think. Um, Kant apparently at all his dinner parties would just—he was obsessed with his bowel and would always bring it up and bore his friends with talks about um, his constipation problem. It really was a big issue. So maybe not him. <laughs> Uh, gee, I'd love to meet Hegel because, you know, we only know his um, 
philosophy. There's not much about him. He is he's a pretty wild, egotistical person, but he just had grand visions of um, understanding the whole universe as these sweeping, um, dialectically opposing aspects of consciousness. So I reckon that would be a pretty good old dinner party with Hegel. Yeah, I'd like to, <laughs> like to catch up with him. I would love to end the event by asking you, Warren, what are you working on now? What I'm working on now is... Um, is a book called Saloniers, and it's about uh, seven women who hosted literary salons in Europe. And I'm fascinated with the intellectual and cultural history in Europe. So it starts from the Renaissance. There's about four women who I don't think many people have heard of, probably hardly anyone. And then there's three others who some people would have heard of, Gertrude Stein, George Sand, and um, Virginia Woolf. But looking at um, this... Uh, really interesting phenomenon, I guess, this institution, this oral institution in society where women have opened up their homes uh, to, to host circles of writers, artists, scientists, thinkers, politicians, uh, and, and in a way um, given birth to whole new movements in Europe. So I've been working on that since 2015, and I'm getting close to the end. Wow. <laughs> Sounds very biblical. Seven men followed by seven women. <laughs> Um, look, if you haven't ha uh, bought Warren's book yet, you really must because, you know, if you read it, you can really show off at dinner parties with not much of <laughs> Makes you look intelligent. <laughs> Very intelligent, yes. Yeah. So I'm sure Warren would love to sell, uh, sign some copies for you now. So thank you so much for coming. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Lee. I just want to say a few thank yous. Is that okay? Yeah. So I just wanted to thank you, Lee, because... About seven years ago, I, um, I wrote to Lee and she's always been really encouraging of me when I was an emerging writer. I never knew if I was going to get the book published, but it was always really supportive. I mentioned my best friend Ross Smith over there who the book is dedicated to, who um, uh, took me out on many long lunches trying to explain Heidegger and other philosophers to me and I would nod a lot, but um, you know, he really got me uh, intrigued. I really wanted to think, thank Bella Tobin. Put your hand up, Bella Tobin. Who, uh, who actually designed the cover of this book. Bella's a design student and a family friend. Uh, you're at RMIT, aren't you, Bella? Yeah. And um, I didn't like what the publisher did and I kept saying, I want Bella to design it. And I think you agree, she's done a wonderful job. And my daughter, Dominique, who's now 20. She was seven when I started writing this. And many times she suffered coming into my study and I would say, writing, which meant go away. But... <laughs> She, you know, would be able to have psychotherapy to do with that. But, yeah, I just wanted to thank, um, thank those people. And readings, of course, and uh, for, for so generously um, allowing us to have this event. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.